I'm just curious, Cody. Normally, I understand these things, but I'm befuddled right now. Why is this called Spittin' Chickens? You know, I can't win on the Levitard show. Uh, Ryan Whitney of the Spittin' Chicklets podcast, Barstool podcast, mm. they do hockey. He called Jonathan Huberdeau, what was it, quietly becoming one of the biggest stars in hockey. Yeah. So we're so we're talking about that. We're Panthers fans. We're, all, we're getting all excited. And I was like, thank you, Spittin' Chickens. I don't know this podcast. I don't know a lot of podcasts. I called them Spittin' Chickens. It's Chicklets. I got made fun of. And then Dan, of course, was like, do a cinephile podcast that is just about chicken references in movies. So go. I'd love to talk more about Jonathan Huberto, tied to the league, leading assists, and Barkov right? having a great year for the Panthers. Panthers Lightning is going to be a great showdown. I hope they face off in the playoffs again. But, yeah, you want to talk spitting chickens? I'll talk chickens all day. <laughs> chicken Run, obviously. I mean, every scene's a chicken movie. Chicken Little comes to mind. How about Back to the Future? You call me chicken? <laughs> chicken? I mean, Arrested Development, if you go to the small screen, have any of you ever even seen a chicken? That's a great scene. The most disturbing one, though, is Eraserhead, in which a character goes over to the house for dinner and the chickens are moving <laughs> even after they're cooked, and they start bleeding out of their orifice. That, there's your spitting chickens, Levitard. By the way, Tommy Lee Jones in New York's Marshals, I believe, is in the opening scene, just shows up in a chicken suit. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and that's actually a very underrated. Guy won an Academy Award for The Fugitive. Yes. Let's make a sequel. You wear a chicken suit. Done. <laughs> opening scene. <laughs> What's why do we play chicken? Why is being chicken something that uh, you're weak for? Yeah, because the thing is, I eat chicken almost every day. I'm like Wade Boggs, right? Before every game, he'd eat chicken. Before every show, I eat chicken. So I don't think that means I'm cowardly, but for some reason, it's become a part of the vernacular. Playing chicken, you're terrified, you're scared. I think chickens are pretty tough, man. You, they, get, they get slaughtered every day. They still hang around humans. You dark meat or white meat guy? Uh, dark meat all the way. I mean, white meat's healthy. The chicken breast, no thanks. Oh, yeah. Legs, all day. Oh, I am, chicken thighs are my shit recently. Oh, now you're talking. Let's do a podcast. American underdog doesn't ever really connect the modest virtuousness of Kurt and Brenda to Kurt's ascension as a quarterback. That's Matt Zoller's sites of RogerEbert.com, one of my favorite critics. He co-wrote the book, The Sopranos Sessions, with Alan Seppenwalz. I've always been a big fan of Matt's work, previous guest on Cinephile, and he nails it in talking about our featured review. That's right, American underdog, the story of Kurt Warner after, quite possibly, Cody, the greatest weekend of football we'll ever oh. see. We're going to talk a little football here on Cinephile. Plus, you make me awfully proud. You have seen our old movie this week. The new is American Underdog. The old, it's not that old, but seven years old, Danny Collins, starring the great Al Pacino, Christopher Plummer, Jennifer Garner, Annette Bening, Bobby Cannavale, and you crushed it. You watched it this weekend. I watched it. I'm excited to talk about it. I have thoughts. There. Oh, you don't even want to. So many thoughts on this movie. You're inspired by um, who was our guy last week? The fire jump. Tully. No, Tully's great. He tweeted. I love how I lashed out at Tully, but yet I'm now watching more movies. Like, good job, Tully. Out of you. Like, you struck a nerve, and I've changed. I'm better one, now. Might, one might say he was a mole. One might say I planted him because of the sparkle of fire. Let's get Cody watching some more movies here. My burner account, James Tully. I'm uh, anchored down in Florida, West Palm <laughs> Beach. Great. <laughs> we also have the wild card, a couple of interviews. One is Ronaldo Marcus Green. He is the director of King Richard. I cannot wait to speak to him. King Richard is a film which is going to do very, very well. I mean, listen, Will Smith right now is the favorite to win Best Actor, but I think it's going to be up for Best Picture and Best Screenplay, maybe Best Supporting Actress. So there's a lot to love about it. And Ronaldo Marcus Green is going to join us to talk about that film about Will, talk a little tennis. Can't wait to talk to him. And one of my best friends the whole wild world, my boy Hussein Madhav, Jim, so proud of him, has a new film called Donkey Head. It's available on Netflix. He is one of the co 
co-stars the film, and Agam Darshi, who is the star and writer and director. It's a cool little Canadian movie, and like I said, it's available on Netflix, so I can't wait for everyone to go check it out. That is the slate today. Before we get into the movies, though, Cody, I'm going to tell you a quick story. Okay. So my boy Ciccone's come on, one of my best friends. He's here this weekend, just for a day. Him and his wife, Melissa. She was visiting her brother who lives in Jersey, temporarily. And he's like, I'll come over to the house Friday. We'll have lunch. We'll hang out. I'm like, yeah. And I said to myself, all right, we'll have lunch. My wife made some really nice food for them. And then it's like really cold. We got four kids. You don't want to just sit in the house all day. I'm like, let's go do something, right? I try to get a babysitter. Sitter unavailable. Some sort of infection. Hate that. I don't know if happened. I hate that. Nothing so worse than like, having plans, needing a sitter, and not being able to get a sitter. Exactly. I mean, there are the, things that are worse, but that's bad. Yeah, it's, it's an uncomfortable situation. But I said, listen, I can't have people visiting my abode and literally just sitting in a house while it's 25 degrees outside. So I put down my youngest boy, who's Moz. He's three. So I put him down like 7.15. Okay, once he's out, he's the most work. And then Yusuf is 13. Okay, you look after Adin and Shaz, your two older brothers. They're 10 and 5. Those three should be okay. What's something we can do that's quick and effective? So I suggested, because I see this every time on the way to work. And I go, I've always wanted to go to this place, Comedy Club. Oh. Bananas Comedy Club on Route 17. I go, it's 20 minutes from the house. We'll go there. If it sucks, we'll come home early. We'll get some nachos. It's all good. All right, Bananas Comedy Club. We go there. <laughs> I see the sign. We walk in. Me and my wife, Shani and his wife, Mel. We go in. It's not here. I'm like, what? I go, the Bananas Comedy Club. The sign is outside. They go, they move locations during COVID. I go, why is there still a sign outside of these moved locations? Well, it's now at the Renaissance. It's seven minutes away. I'm like, okay, we're kind of cutting it tight. The comedy starts at eight. I, by the way, I'd called ahead. I was like, listen, because I know I've been to Caroline's on Broadway in New yeah. York City. It's amazing. Like, freaking Dave Chappelle shows up. That thing sells out. Yeah. I go, do it. Is it going to sell out? She goes, it's not going to sell it. The comedy starts at eight. Come whenever you like. We get there at 750. Okay, we find the right place, go up there. It's actually maybe. 75 people? Like, I'm like, oh, it's probably more than I thought. I'm like, that's yeah, fairly, not tightly packed. Everyone's got their masks. I'm like, okay, like, who else in Jersey? Friday Night Comedy Club. We're going to Bananas. First act comes out, and I'm like, first off, I can't tell, and I'm not trying to be funny, if it's a man or a woman. Because it's like a little kid. It's like a 14-year-old kid. And he's talking in a high voice, but kind of looks like a guy. I'm really not sure. Like, it's kind of like Pat on, on the SNL. And the whole bit is his appearance and his looks and stuff. It is a guy. His name is Mario. He's friends with Jimmy Kimmel. My wife looks him up afterwards because when we were leaving, he was like, hey, please follow me on Instagram. Like, yeah. literally, like, please follow me. My wife looks him up. She's like, yeah, apparently he's friends with Kimmel. He's 42 years old. He has this condition he was born with. He looks like a little kid. Bottom line is this. That's horrible, but the comedy was terrible. Like, it, 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 and he's the opening act, and I'm like, oh, my God. Like, the first time, awful. My wife's on the phone the whole time. Me, Johnny, and Mel are just working on the nachos. I'm like, hey, like, this, this was a bad idea. And, this, and by the way, this is my idea. So, like, this One is on One comic me. in, you're like, this is bad. I'm like, this is bad. Like, this is why people don't go to comic clubs anymore. There's only 75 people. They're like, what are you doing? Like, unless you know who's – it's Chris Rock's playing. Right. Okay, fine. Who is this guy? Next act comes up. Female. A little bit funnier. A little bit more polished. But still not really funny. My wife's still on the phone the whole time. I'm like, this is just a bad idea. It's my fault. I'm like, at least I paid for it, but whatever. I feel bad, right? Then the next thing comes up, and, and I can already tell, like, this guy's got some more presence. And he has a familiar face and a familiar delivery. And his name is Farley. And two minutes in, Chiconi turns because Chris Farley's brother. That's Chris yes. Farley's brother. Oh, my God. I can't think of his name, but I know what he looks like. He's been in some movies as small characters, but he's also a comedian. Yes. I believe he's on a Netflix show, F is for Family. Um, and the first couple of jokes are okay, but I just love his style because I'm like, this guy is just like Chris is Farley. He doing, the, the, is he doing the Farley bit kind of stuff? He's kind of like, like kind of this mannerisms more than anything, right? That kind of awkward Kevin sense Farley. Of it. Was it Kevin, Kevin Farley? Farley? That's right, Kevin Farley. Because there's Farley's also the John guy. Farley who's been in movies, but I think Kevin Farley's the comedian. 
It's got to be Kevin Farley. I felt like a Kevin Farley. So he's doing the whole thing, and, and he was really funny. And thank God he salvaged the night. Because I'm like, that's the difference between a professional comic and someone who's just trying to warm up the crowd. Yeah. He had some great bits. His, his funniest bit was about Chris. <laughs> he said, he go, and he waited a while, by the way, to mention that it's his brother. He went like maybe 20 minutes in a second. Because by the way, like, you know, in case people are wondering, Chris Farley is my brother. Guys, y'all big fans of my father. Oh, Did that get a reaction from the crowd? Like, like huge, were there people absolutely. there that didn't realize it? Like, people were just no, there. No, like, no, is that when you realized think, it? No, 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 two minutes in, my Johnny turned to me and goes, okay. hey, this is Chris Farley's brother. Because he Googled it quickly. He goes, yeah, yeah. that's his brother. I'm like, okay. Because like, the mannerisms are dead on. I was like, oh, yeah. So 20 minutes in, he says, the whole crowd starts cheering. He goes, I'll tell you one story about my brother, Chris. He goes, it's Christmas. And he goes, we grew up in Wisconsin, which, I mean, all it is is just fat people just drinking beer and talking about the Packers <laughs> and shoveling snow. Hey, how's the Packers looking? How, ironic after this weekend, the Packers upset victory. But he's like, okay, oh, yeah, that's all they're doing about. And he goes, we're there, upset loss, I should say. So they're tired. And he goes, Chris says to me, he goes, I got a. I got a great gift for Christmas. And he's like, what is this? He goes, I got a bunch of sex toys. And, and Frank's like, no. He's like, what do you mean? He goes, he goes yeah, I, I got a lot of them. And he's like, for everybody. And they, apparently, they're, I think they're a family of five. And he's like, how many? He goes, I've got like a hundred. And, and, and Frank goes, Chris, you're going to ruin Christmas. He's like, no, no, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be epic. So the first gift, dad opens it up. It's a bottle of lube. And he starts laughing. <laughs> Frank's going to go inside and start jerking off with his lube. <laughs> so he gets a great reaction. The second one, they open up, and it's a blow-up doll with, like, realistic pubic hair. And the father is not as amused. He's like, well, like, what are you doing with this nasty? Like, oh, your pubic hair. It's kind of gross. The third gift, which is opened up by the mom, is a black dildo. Oh, <laughs> and the father is outraged. And the mom is kind of like, mm, I'm kind of excited right now. <laughs> a big black dildo being given by Chris The mom's Farley. like, I can't believe you got me this. And she like puts it in her purse. <laughs> Does this come with a strap? I'm just curious, about, just curious how this works. Yes. But it was really Working funny. Blue. So. Go- Go check out Frank Farley. The guy's hilarious. Uh, he also did a really good bit. My wife only really laughs at fart humor, and he did like a whole five-minute bit on fart humor, having a fart fight. His oh. big thing was like, imagine on a plane. He goes, like, he goes, when someone farts, and you kind of look at people and try to figure out who did it, and they have that suspicious look on their face. And he goes, imagine the stewardess. To go from the front to the back, she's going to fight through eight farts. Oh, that's so <laughs> true. I never thought about that, because I, I admitted before in Lebitard, I'm, I'm a plane farter. It's really the only time I'll let it rip in yeah. public. And, 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 but I never think about this as stewardess. I always just think about the other people. That's hilarious. But you don't lift your butt and do it. Like, you know, like no, no, a no. Dog. That's you the best part of, like, yeah. the reason, and I've, the, the reason that you can do it on a plane and feel okay yeah. about it is that there's so much ambient noise on a plane that you can literally be in the middle seat and do this. Like, it can be this loud. And it won't be heard. There's so much ambient noise with the engine and, like, all the noises on a plane, you don't hear it. So it's such a safe space for, yeah. you don't have to lift your butt up because you can just sit there and, as long as there's not a huge vibration, you should be in the clear. And my whole thing is too, like, don't call attention to it as you're pointing up, but also like, don't lift up. Like, you don't want the sm- you're trying to suppress that smell. You don't want it wafting up. All of a sudden, the guy gives you and, a side eye. And you don't want to be the over the top looking around at who did it, because then people are like, it's clearly yeah. you. Like whoever smelled the Delta. If yeah. you're literally looking back a couple rows, like we get it, buddy. You farted. It's fine. You don't need to sell this that hard. <laughs> this is an outrage. Who did that? At the end of the show, Frank Farley was awesome. Um, the the is it Frank Farley? Uh, we're we're Frank going with Frank now. Farley. We're going no, with Frank. It's, it's Kevin or John. It's Kevin. It's got to be Kevin. Sorry, I'm going with Frank. It's definitely not Frank Farley. There may be a Frank Farley, but it's Kevin Farley. At the end, they go, Kevin Farley's outside. He's got some shirts and pictures. 
Hmm. So we go back and I go, so like, there's maybe three or four people lining up. And at the shirt, it's a Only white three shirt. Three or four people of the 75 actually wanted to meet him. That's so sad. <laughs> and the shirt just says Farley. It's just a white t-shirt Farley. Oh, Probably costs five bucks to make. And you can get a picture with him and he's signing it. And I'm hesitating, wife, because oh. you want to get it? You want to get one? I go forty bucks. And I go, it's not that I want to get one. I just know this guy's not making much money. He seems like yeah. a good dude. It was really funny. Support the Farley family. Support the Farley family. Support comedy. But I don't. I don't want the shirt. I, right. I don't. Okay, I'll get the picture. I'll post on IG. It'll be a good shirt for me and Cody. Like that's say, it. No, nope, good on the shirt. Good. So then I'm like, okay. How much? And then I look how much they go. Twenty five dollars. I go. Oof. I'm not gonna pay twenty five dollars. <laughs> that, that's kind of steep. But and maybe. Eight people. Like, I saw three or four lining up. Then I went to the bathroom, came back three or four. I go, okay, eight times 25, 200 bucks. That's a nice how, 200. That's dinner right there, baby. Well, how much do you think he made for the night? So let's try to figure this out. Because I said to my wife, Kevin Farley's getting $1,000 to show up. She goes, no way. She goes, oh, 75 yeah. people. I go, he's getting $1,000. Yeah, he's getting $1,000. The opening comic is getting 50 bucks. The female got 100 He gets like a grand. Plus yeah, I would, the bet he, I would bet a grand to show up, and then he gets his 200 with his shirts. Nice little $1,200 evening. Which ain't too you know shabby. What? I'll take it. <laughs> which raises the larger issue which I'm bringing to. What about Cinephile going on tour? I have never done stand-up, but I would love to do it. I think you'd be great at stand-up, particularly your impressions. Dude, so, we are going to L.A., a, a few of us from the show, for the Super Bowl, so I will be in L.A. I've already reached out to this comedian friend of mine. Look at me. I'm dropping names. Brad yeah. Williams. He's a comedian. Okay. He is like going to take us to the comedy store. Like I'm, I, that, I, When you started talking about that, one of my favorite things to do is go watch comedy. Usually it's somebody I'm going to pay for, so it's not usually one of those what you're doing, right. but I'm open to that, and we're going to do that in L.A. at the famous comedy <sighs> store on a Tuesday night, which Brad Williams tells me is the night for comedy because... Because it's when nobody's on tour. Like everybody, the good comedians go out on tour on the weekend. So like the best nights for those type of comedy clubs is actually Tuesday. So we're going on the night to go. Oh. We're getting hooked up with a table by my boy Brad. And uh, I am like so looking forward to it. So when you started talking about that, it was like right up my alley. My boy who? So you're going to hear later today. He is an actor. He is in L.A. The last one we went to a comic club was in L.A. We went to the famed comedy store. And oh. there, Bill Burr showed up. And he goes, oh, that's yeah. what happens. Like, it's just, you know, all, you have the planned comics. And then Bill Burr's here to do a set. I'm like, oh, my God. Bill Burr's doing 10 minutes. Yeah. I was looking at the lineups for, like, this week just to see what kind of names they get. And there was, like, six or seven people of the 10 that I had. Like, I know who they are. So it's yeah. like this. I'm so excited to see who we see. I agree. A, a comedy store like L.A. or Caroline's on Broadway. I mean, that's like that's like a Broadway show. Like, if you're going elite talent, like elite comedy, you know it's going to be funny. What I did, where the, risky yeah. move. What I did was where, risky yeah. and like, worked out. But what you're doing is awesome. It's, it's where, like, they're working on their acts. Like, their next yes. comedy special, this is where they're testing it out. So, yeah, I'm super excited about that. But back to my original point. I'm telling you right now, if this lockout lasts... We're going on tour. Cinephile on tour. <laughs> yes. The smartless guys are doing it. Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, Sean Hayes. They just sold out Boston. I'm taking Cinephile on tour. I don't have any details yet, but me and Chris are going to think. If the lockout keeps going, I'm going to need something to do. I'm going to need my 1200 bucks. All right. <laughs> let's talk a little movie, shall we? American Underdog. You think, Why the hell did you go see this, Ferk? What are you, nuts? Hmm. Here's what it is. 13-year-old Yusuf wanted to go see it. It was an incredible weekend of football, as Chris and I both know. So I got oh. started by watching this movie. So I'm like, it was all football all weekend. And I knew it wasn't going to be good. The only bit of advice had been given by our boss, John Skipper, was this. I don't particularly care for superhero movies. I know you do not either, but I do think it is important that you do see the biggest film in the country. Whatever is the number one film, we want to get the most downloads. I love this like, impression. Right? I love yeah. this impression. So, like, so, and I think at the time when John said this to me, I said, like, free guy. He goes, yeah, I, I don't particularly care for Ron Reynolds, but if that is the number one film, you should be talking about that on Cinephile. And I said, John, what I do is Fast and the Furious, I don't care about it. I have Billy on. Billy talks about Fast and the Furious. So, like, trust me, whatever the number one film is, I'll take care of it. Wasn't, Macbeth, wasn't Macbeth that last week and Dan 
was giving us shit. Like, we can't yeah. win around here. Exactly. I'm like, dude, what do you want? Do you want the critics pick? Do you want the most popular movie? Like, there wasn't, right now, the movie theater, the most popular films. Chris and I have talked with them all. Spider-Man is still the number one film at the box office. I guess I could do Scream. I really don't want to go, I got scared of those oh, movies. Oh, really we got to do assume. Scream. I got to do Scream. Okay. All right, potentially we can do Scream next week. Sing 2, we've already talked about. Um, you know, we talk, American Underdog is like fifth on the list right now. So I'm like, all right, of all the top movies right now, let's go see American Underdog. Plus, I know this is a sports audience, so here we go. If you're wondering, because I get a lot of texts already like, dude, why'd you go see that? I'm like, because my son wanted to see it. It's a football podcast. I have to see one new release a week. That's my job. I have to go see a new movie. So here it is. One very good. <laughs> the story of NFL MVP and Hall of Fame quarterback Kurt Warner, who went from stocking shelves at a supermarket to becoming an American football star. Directed by Andrew and John Irwin. Never heard of them. Based on the book by Kurt Warner and Michael Silver. Based on the book All Things Possible. And it's adapted by David Aaron Cohen. The best part of the movie is Zachary Levy, who played Shazam, right? He's a, he's a big, hulking guy. Very likable. Like What I always think about with Hollywood is it must be hard to make these movies because most of the guys are the same height as you and me. Most actors are, you know, 5'7", five, 5'8", five, five, it's tough to find a guy who looks like an NFL quarterback. Zachary Levy looks like he's 6'4", 225, whatever Kurt Warner is. So casting is a big part of it, and he's likable, and he's got a bit of that Kurt Warner twang, and I thought he did a really good job with it. But the story, like, I'm here for the football movie, right? My kid's here for the football movie. By the way, I took two of my other kids, dragged them along to give mom a break. Westwood Cinemas here in Jersey had not been to it before. Four of us for a matinee, 40 bucks. So I think we're saving about 10 bucks from AMC. Large popcorn, but no refill. Ooh. And no slushies. Oh, like, did they sent. have the machine and it wasn't working or they just don't have them? No slushies available. And I go, this is probably going to be the first and last time I come to this movie theater. <laughs> but I'll pay up for a $5 Pepsi. Pepsi is a refill. It's a medium or large, you get a refill. I go, done, I'll get a medium and I will get a refill. I will get a lemonade as well. And I will get a orange juice for this five-year-old young man, Shaz. All right, great. So we're going to have about $20 for concessions, 40 bucks in the movies, 60 bucks for American Underdog. I, I, first, just love, I just love real fast, the world's nicest man, if you really want to tick him off. <laughs> don't have slushies at your movie theater like that's like that is what will break him and will get him pointing yeah. a did you point a finger you're like hey yeah i just because i'm with you i said i thought it was a broken machine i go is there not is it like a cold weather issue she's like well, i go you just don't have slushies you oh. just we got milk duds no slushies but you have popcorn okay thank you i mean geez <laughs> you appear to have a lot of unlimited twizzlers which are not being sold but you don't need slushies so the first 20 minutes is about kurt warner and i tell you i wanted to walk out of the theater the, the, i'm not kidding he goes to a country and western bar i'm sure a lot of people out there like country and western music not my jam and he sees anna paquin who's playing brenda warner who chris and i know as avid football fans i mean the image of her with the short hair and a yeah, cheering yeah. on and the kurt kiss. Like, yeah, yeah. And the kiss exactly like all i'm thinking is brenda warner <laughs> and anna paquin does a good job because she looks kind of like brenda warner like she's got the short hair and the whole look but she's like line dancing and Kurt Warner's trying to figure out how to line dance. He requests one of his black teammates. He's like, dude, you need to teach me how to line dance. I got to go hit on this girl. And I'm like, talk about a situation I would never be in. I'm never going to be in Iowa trying to learn how to line dance. Square dancing? Is it square dancing or line dancing? It's, it's line called... dancing. And I have to yeah. say, I've been in a country bar before. In, South, in, like in my, in my you know, neck of the woods, there's a country bar. It's not my scene, <laughs> but I've ended up there. And I've, I've been the drunk guy on the floor who doesn't know any of the line dances and is like looking around like, can you teach me? And like everyone's just like, guy, get out of here. You're drunk. Yeah, but you do know how to line dance a little bit. Oh, no. I know how to do the wobble. Sure. Wobble, baby. Wobble, baby. Wobble. Yeah. Well, but yeah, yeah. That, yeah that, that one, that, 
I can kind of do, but I, it's basically, it's a cheat code. There's basically like the same type dances, but you just throw different songs around it. I don't yeah. know. To answer your question, I don't know how to line dance, okay. but I've been in that world enough to kind of like, I respect, okay. I, I would actually like, if I saw that opening scene, I'd be like, oh, okay, cool. I can relate to this. I can relate to this. I've been that I, I guy. can't wait for 430 Eastern to watch the Bengals and you're like, hey, you know what? I kind of like this movie. I'm, I'm down for more of this popcorn. No slushies here. I don't care. We're good. I hope this is a four hour movie. Let's go. So the first 20 minutes to half an hour, it's like a romance. Like it's a love story. And I'm thinking, I'm here with a 13 year old, a 10 year old, and a five year old. These guys do not want to see a love story. They want to see some football. So I'm already upset with the tone of it. It feels like a very mature adult love story. You know, there's an expression when you say, I don't know how well it'll play in Peoria, meaning Peoria, yeah. Illinois, you know, middle class, Midwest, excuse me. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, yeah, this will play great in Peoria. This is about a white couple line dancing and he <laughs> believes in his dreams and, you know, they're very religious and believe in Jesus. And I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. Like this is, this is definitely for that audience, yeah. which audience I'm not a part of, but I'm going yeah. to sit through this movie. So the next 45 minutes or so, they go on his journey. You see him stocking shelves. Everyone knows Kurt Warner was stocking shelves. He goes to arena football, lights up in the arena football. The only thing that is redeemable about this film experience for me was the last 20 to 30 minutes. Once he goes to the Rams, this part was kind of interesting because Trent it's Green gets 20 her. minutes of his NFL career. Thank you. <laughs> so you got to go an hour 40 of basically a love story. Did not know Brenda Warner has two kids. One of them is blind. You know, uh, that's all you know, violin love strings there. All of a sudden, he's looking after the kid, and she wants to break up with him because she wasn't sure if she wants to travel. You go follow your football dreams, Kurt. I'm just a mom looking after my kids. I mean, it's, it's a lot of that for an hour 40. A yeah. lot of that. It's an hour 57. The last 20 minutes, you get to, okay, now he's, on the, now he's trying out for the Rams. Let's go. And Trent Greatest Green's show on turf. Finally. Greatest show on turf. Marshall Falk. Marshall <laughs> Falk, not even mentioned. You do see Isaac Bruce show up. Isaac Bruce is like, hey, what's up, Kurt? Good luck, man. I'm right. Not the yeah. Isaac Bruce, but a guy right. playing Isaac Bruce. And what is the big takeaway is this. Dennis Quaid, I want to find out how much he made for this. This is a glorified cameo as Dick Vermeil. He's in maybe three do? scenes, 10 minutes. He's just kind of like a crotchety guy. Like, nah. oh, come on, man. I'm back now. I'm Dick Vermeil. Like, I get emotional <laughs> about stuff. And let's go. Let's go win some football games, man. Let's go cry. But the big, yeah, let's go cry. The big shocker is Mike Martz. And I brought this up to Michael Lombardi, my friend and partner on the GM Shuffle. The villain of this movie. What is keeping Brenda and Kurt apart, I mean, as far as their love is concerned, is just her self-doubt and his dream of football. But the real challenge they face is the fact this guy is a huge dick. Mike Martz <laughs> does not believe in Kurt Warner. He's played by Chance Kelly, dead ringer. He's got the hair. He's got the glasses. For those who are unaware, great, brilliant offensive coordinator. He's like, Warner, you suck. I'm reading football. Ain't nothing. Like, you better not get too comfortable, Warner. How long did you last in your last We're training camp? We're putting this oh, guy yeah. in? Oh, 100%. And like he's insulting him in quarterback meetings. Like, this is like Mike Martz is the biggest jerk in the history Coaching of offensive up, coordinators. Baby. Coaching him up. And thank you. That's exactly what happens because Trent Green gets hurt. And then in his first game, I don't know if this actually happened. I'll have to verify this. He throws a pick to Ray Lewis. I feel like they made this up. But maybe throw a pick to Ray Lewis. He goes to the sidelines. Like, hey, coach wants to talk to you. Martz is an offense coordinator up in the sky. I can't. Warner kind of gives a, oh, and he goes, you know, I was so tough on you, Warner. I want to make sure you're ready for moments like this. You go out there and you play like a champion. I'm like, oh, my God, this movie. <laughs> but, hey, the last five minutes are kind of sweet, too, because then you get a really quick credit montage. By the way, Kurt Warner won MVP. They won the Super Bowl. He gets interviewed by Tariko. It's the actual Kurt Warner. That was pretty cool. He actually thanks the real Brenda Warner, the video from 1999, uh, you know, made the Hall of Fame. You don't see the NFL Network stuff. By the way, Kurt Warner, who that day, I think, actually watched the NFL Network. He's on game day morning with Rich Eisen. American underdog. I'm going to give it, I'm being generous here, two Maple Leafs. It really should be one, one and a half. I'll give it two, especially for me and Chris as football fans. I mean, I just don't think it's for us. It is for middle-class, Midwestern people in Iowa want to see a nice love story. Two thoughts. Uh, There was one review I sent you where one of the people uh, called this movie predictable. And I was just thinking, it's a true story. 
Like, yeah. like, aren't these like real life stories? They're obviously predictable. I just thought that was funny. And yeah. also, I don't think he actually stocks shelves at this. I think he was a cash register, but it just sounds better to say I used to stock shelves. Like he worked at a grocery store and he never stocked shelves, but it just sounds good. Went from stocking shelves to the NFL. Like it doesn't sound as good. Went from being a cash register at a grocery store. Like it just that just sounds good. That's not a bad call, actually. You know what? Because the registry kind of makes you like elitist. It's not a big deal. Like, dude, I'll do. Listen, if this locker continues, I'll go be a cash. Is that Adam Burke at Stop and Shop? I'm like, yeah, I'll work the register. I don't care. Stock shelves. Uh. <laughs> Couple of reviews here. Joe Layden of Variety, the one that Chris alluded to. American Underdog is a thoroughly predictable yet hugely entertaining Whoa, sports popping. Are you kidding? It's bound to please almost anyone who's not a sourball cynic or a snarky <laughs> critic. Well, apparently, I'm That's a sourball and a snark. Not like a country bar. What the hell's wrong with you? That is American Underdog, our featured review starring Zachary Levy, who plays Kurt Warner himself, Anna Paquin as Brenda. You got Dennis Quaid as Dick Vermeil. Now it's time for our first guest. And honestly, it's a good guest. I'm pumped right now. We've got some good guests lately here on Cinephile. He's the director of King Richard. His name is Reynaldo Marcus Green. Here he is. King Richard is a film that's getting lots of buzz right now. The Oscar nominations are February 8th, and not only is Will Smith the frontrunner to not only get a nomination, but win Best Actor, I believe the film will be nominated for Best Picture and Best Supporting Actress, Best Screenplay, and maybe even Best Director. On that note, it's a real pleasure to bring in Reynaldo Marcus Green, the director of King Richard, and he's also a guy with a, a fascinating backstory straight out of Sundance. He's here in Cinephile. Ray, thanks so much. Congratulations on making a terrific film. Oh, man, it's my pleasure to do this, and thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's get into Will Smith first, and this is the role that I believe is going to win him an Academy Award. He's a hard worker, he's a likable guy, he's done comedy, he's done drama, been Oscar nominated for for Ali, but I really feel like in this role he kind of disappears into Richard Williams. Tell me about his process, you and him working together, the relationship with star and director is always a special one. What was it like for you guys? Yeah, look, I, I, I've been sort of comparing him to Tom Brady leaving New England <laughs> and going to Tampa Bay and, and looking for a championship, and I think it, it came down to a mindset. I think, look, he was attached to the film before I came onto it and obviously was looking for someone to help shepherd the film. It's complicated, right? It's, it's part, you know, sports film, part biopic, like what, like, what is it? What's the tone? What do we want to be? And when I first met him, you know, I told him about my experience growing up in, in Staten Island, New York, you know, home of the Wu-Tang, like, you know, it was rough, but my dad had me on a baseball field and he was raising what he thought was a major league baseball player. So he wore the same shorts as Richard, you know, he was as eccentric and as, you know, as that's outspoken. And I understood how a black man in America could be misunderstood, especially, you know, in a sport that, you know, we didn't quite exist. And, and so I understood Richard and I understood Richard's plight, but what I came to understand in the making of the movie was just how involved the family was, just how important and integral or scene was to this piece, um, how important it was for the other three sisters alongside Venus and Serena to help shepherd this thing. And so Will and I just, you know, worked together with Zach Balin, who wrote a, wrote a brilliant script to really flush that part of the process out. And that started from day one. So many people that helped us uh, to achieve this, but it, it starts with a leader. It starts with your quarterback. 
on the field and he, uh, Patrick Mahomes or Tom Brady, whoever you want to, you know, uh, relate him to, he was, he was ready and came, and came ready to play. How are you as a baseball player? Your dad was pushing you. What kind of a baseball player comp would you draw yourself to? Are you Serena or Venus? Uh, you know, I was definitely Serena, you know, but I, I went out, I tapped out, I tapped out with a, you know, you know, I, I just tapped out early. You know, I, I was, uh, I had two major league tryouts, the Mets and the Reds oh. after my, my freshman year of college. And, and, you know, and then I just regressed. I just didn't get, I didn't get better. I got worse. Um, you know, baseball is such a game of life. And, and I think that's what was so interesting and fascinating about tennis, which I didn't know much about was just how it felt like pitching and hitting at the same time. And yeah. so I, I, I've become obsessed with the sport since, uh, since taking this project on, but I certainly had, I had the bite, you know, that Serena had that younger sibling, you know, always feeling left in the shadow, always feeling like, you know, I had that underdog story to tell. And, 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 um, you know, so I certainly related to that character a lot. Mark Mulder, who I worked with the former major league pitcher, is ambidextrous. So when he plays tennis, if he hits with his right hand, he has to hit it up. If it's with his left, he hits it under. So it's insane. He's literally switching rackets constantly <laughs> when he plays tennis, which is something only major league pitchers can do. I don't know if you can do that as well. But <laughs> let's talk more about Will, because I think the critical part is this. As you said, you've got the script. You're forming it. Okay, where's the character going? What story are we telling? What I love is it's an origin story. We're not going to show Serena at Wimbledon. This is the origin story. This is their beginning. But the key is it's King Richard, which I think is meant somewhat ironically. Yes, he is King Richard, but he's also a bloviator. And yes, he's prone to arrogance and being a little bit difficult and domineering. So it has multiple layers to it. How do you as a director balance? He's the lead character. He's a movie star, but there's different shadings to it. We want to show his nobility, but also his flaws. How are you able to balance that with Will? Well, it started with the script. Zach, Zach certainly had written a lot of the, you know, uh, things that crazy things that Richard was doing, going to collect balls at these fancy country clubs. And it's like, well, well, how do you do that? The good thing about Will is that he's naturally likable. He's naturally charismatic. And so I think it added an element to, to the real Richard Williams character who may not have had that it factor that I think Will has. And I think Will is far more approachable than maybe the, the real Richard Williams may have been. And so I think he just has, he has a little bit of the sauce, I'd say. And then it was just not sugarcoating any of the things that we felt were important, you know, whether he goes into a room and passes gas, like those things are, are really, really important idiosyncratic things about Richard's character, which we think are important. The Cinderella scene. And these are moments in Richard's life where other people may have acted differently. And that's what makes Richard so special. Um, on top of, look, the, the story beats, right? He pulls his girls out of junior tennis when they are at the top of their game. They're already seemingly well-behaved children. <laughs> so, you know, but any hint that they may have been going off course or steering in a different direction, he was ready to pull the plug at any moment. And I think that's what makes Richard so special and unpredictable because you never know what he's going to do. He has Tony Goldwyn on his toes the whole time. He has John Bernthal on his toes the whole time. And you just don't know what Richard's going to do. And that's what makes him a really exciting character. So Will and I talked a lot about that. And I think in the original iterations of the trip, there was uh, there were flashbacks. And so that was a big part of like eliminating flashbacks. I said, look, we don't have time in this movie. We have two and a half hours. We don't have time to go to Shreveport. And, but we, but this is important backstory for, for Will to know. And so all of the things that Will was finding out about Richard Williams himself, his father, his relationship, Will did a lot of digging himself to find those moments, which we then ended up putting in the script. So, you know, kudos to, to, to Will really doing a, a deep character dive. And so, you know, I'd like to say part of the job is organizing the team around him 
you know, that that includes Anjanu Ellis, that includes, you know, uh, Sanaya Sidney and Demi Singleton to play off of it and, and, and giving Will the space and the players to essentially pass the ball because LeBron can only dunk so many times a game. At some point, he has to pass the ball. And I think that's what makes this film special is that we have Scottie Pippen and, and Michael Jordan on the same field. And, w- and when you have that combination, it's it's quite dangerous. When you have Anjanu Ellis as a secret weapon of this film, as the spine to Richard Seth, 78 plan, 78 page plan, you know, it, it makes it a very dangerous, uh, you know, combination and, and, and fireworks when, when you put those actors in, in, in a scene. Yeah. I thought Andrew Ellis was amazing. I think she's going to get nominated for best playing actress. She's fantastic. And you're right. A great actor. You're going to have, you got to, it's like playing tennis. You got to have somebody on the other side of the net who can hit the ball back to you with that kind of ferocity. You mentioned the fact that Will was talking to Richard. It's interesting. I just read a book about raging bull. De Niro, as you know, was very intimately involved with Jake LaMotta, asking him questions, going through, living with him, studying him. And yet Scorsese made a point of saying he did not want Kathy Moriarty to get to know Vicky, who was Jake's ex-wife. He said, no, I don't want you to be playing Vicky. You're playing what Jake epitomizes in Vicky. With that being said, how much creative control did Venus or Serena have involved in the movie? So uh, Will actually never met Richard. He, he oh, just, okay. he, no, he never met him in person. He, he, he did a lot of research outside, um, you know, to, to find. And then, of course, we, we did meet Orsine. Uh, we met Venus. We met Serena. And, and look, I think Ultimately, they were as free to be a part of the project as possible. Our secret weapon on this movie was our producer, uh, Isha Price, who is one of the sisters and literally was our conduit into the family. And so she would keep the family abreast of what was happening and the decisions that we were making. But it was really like just keeping them involved. You know, they're they're full time professional tennis players, you know, and this is this is just something that, you know, the family wanted to do or be a part of. And Isha was really, really our, our secret weapon. She was on set every day. So when it came to production design, hey, look, this is the house I'm thinking about. Okay, what did it look like in the bedroom? Where were the, there were two bunk beds here, one bunk bed here. She was able to really get into the nuances of it. Oh, okay, she would, she would, you know, Venus would toss the ball this way and Serena would toss the ball this way. And so the nuances of character, we were really able to kind of dig in. And it's not things that you, you see per se, but it's things that you feel. But yeah, look, Venus and Serena were, you know, were very helpful in, in, in prep in the sense that we got a chance to sit down with them and ask them questions about their characters. One of the first things Serena said, uh, Venus said to me was, Serena's the kind of sister that would skip a match to see me practice. And like, that was enough. That was enough of a character detail for me to say, okay, no matter what happens here, there won't be, there won't be that jealousy that you see in most films between sisters. It won't be that same kind of envy. It'll be different. Like, of course she wants to be with her sister because all she wants to do is be with Venus, but it's not going to be because she wants what she has and all, and all of that infighting. They just didn't have that. So I wanted to stay true to those things, which I, I can understand that unbreakable bond with a sibling. And you just don't see that. You see broken homes. You, you see, sibling rivalry and you just don't see that kind of family support a black family supporting each other like what was the last time you've seen that on film so i wanted to showcase all of that and more and look you literally would see when, when Venus and Serena actually did come to set and meet and meet Sanaya and Demi and, and the crew, you could see how close they were. It wasn't made up. They weren't faking it for the cameras. This is a family that is truly, truly, truly deeply connected on, on so many levels. Tennis is just like, seems like the thing that they just do for fun. Yeah, remarkable athletes and remarkable success stories. I want to touch on what you said, which is that a black family loving and supporting each other. How rare is that on film? There's so many movies you and I could list. Like, Why do you think... 
Because, you, you know, you have to deal with the fact race is a big part of the story. Of course it is. You have black tennis players at a Compton trying to, uh, you know, work and survive and thrive in the white establishment. Why do you think so many movies about race tend to feel like after-school specials? You know, look, I think, sadly, we've, you know, our, our stories have been reduced over time into, into that you know, sort of crime-ridden sort of stories. And, and I think w- what's so interesting about this story is that it's set in the same community as one of my favorite films, Boys in the Hood. Right. And it just shows a different side to Compton that we're used to seeing. It doesn't say, hey, there's no... No, no violence. There is. There's, you know, Richard gets beat up on the court. He, he, he's, he literally almost gets killed. It's around them, but this family was insulated in a different way. There were still drug houses across the street. There's graffiti all over the town. There's broken bottles on the court. We just don't put it in your face. We're not doing cutaways of that stuff because I think the way they saw their community was very different. They were they they went to work, they went to church, they went and they, and they went to tennis. And like that was their point of view. And it, of course, they interacted with that. But that wasn't the world they were living in to support themselves. Where 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 I feel like, yes, we see it. We hear the police presence and the helicopters going across. We see the cops coming in. We see them come into their house, the social workers. But we never make it too much of a of a on the you know, we're beating you over the head with with this is how this story was. This, this family, obviously, I think, did something something completely um, what would be improbable on, on paper, but not impossible. And they show you that if you work hard and you dedicate yourself and, and you know that good things can happen. There's probably a lot of Venus and Serena stories that we just don't know about. Um, and, and it's important for us to see ourselves, you know, for us to see our families doing good work within these communities because there's lots of people that are. And so I, I hope that more stories get told like this that, that, that show you that, you know, there are people working hard and doing the right thing and, and, and making something of themselves. And that doesn't mean I never saw it as a get out of Compton story. I always saw it as a I am from Compton story. They wear that as a badge of honor. They're proud to be from Compton. They do a lot of work within the community. So it's not like, hey, I became rich. See, I'm in Hollywood. Bye. It's like, hey, this is this is what got me here. And this is this is how I'm going to pull up that next generation. A couple more. and We'll get you out of here. I just read the article in The Hollywood Reporter about the real Rick Macy working with John Bernthal. And Bernthal's quickly becoming one of my favorite character actors. I watch The Many Saints of Newark and I see him here and Punisher. And I'm like, got the mustache, dropped a bunch of weight. Like, he's, he's pretty physical. Like, he's jacked. I'm like, to play this guy, he's got to lose like 15, 20 pounds and getting into tennis, studying film. Tell me about Bernthal. He seems like a trip. So, so when I first met John, it was at a cafe in Venice. And- and he like rolled up with like a hoodie and like a, you know, a pit bull in the front seat. And I was like, whoa, like he literally looked like the Punisher, you know, the boots. I was like, well, you know, <laughs> let's see how this goes. And look, we we immediately hit it off like, you know, sort of a bro meeting, but like we played sports. We're both dads. He had already told me he started losing weight for the role. Now, I hadn't cast him, but he was like, yeah, I had already like he's already down 10. And I was like, either this guy is completely insane or he or he's amazing. And like, I think it's a combination of both. It's the latter. He, he just works harder than everybody else around him. He refuses to take no. And I was just I really love the idea of, 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 of casting against type. You know, he's an athlete, so he understood what that was like. And so he you know, he said he was already training up in Ojai. So he Look, in my mind, he had already sort of d- done a deep dive into the character and, and I needed someone that was going to go all the way there. He said his hair, he already had long hair. So that's actually his real hair in the movie. He grew that mustache, which I know his wife couldn't stand. <laughs> but like on, on top of being just a phenomenal actor, he, he is a great human being. And I think what what he was able to do in those scenes with Will and those scenes with Anjanu and the family is that 
it doesn't matter if he had one line or, 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 or 30, he was completely in, in character. And when you cut away to him in the stands and you see how he feels as the coach and he's just, he's really remarkable. And, and I can't say enough great things about John, tr- tr- tremendous talent, truly one of my favorite actors, which we got a chance to collaborate again on. We own the city for HBO, which will come out in April. So I'm really, really happy. And, and look, I think he completely elevates his role. He elevates this movie. We couldn't have done it without him. And I, and I know Will Ingenue and the girls feel the same. Last one for you. Your journey, as I said, is amazing. Monsters and Men. I remember seeing it at Sundance. It's a shame the last two years now, Sundance has been virtual. But having a movie play there, get instant buzz, very topical, of course, dealing with police violence and African-Americans. I mean, it's pretty remarkable, dude. You had a film at Sundance 2018. Now you're directing King Richard, which is, I mean, you're going to be at the Oscars. I mean, what, what is this like for you? You know, look, I, I've always been, maybe it's the baseball player in me. You play 162 games and you hope to make it to the playoffs. And, and then, you know, if you play hard enough and you have enough stamina, you make it to the World Series and, and, and you just keep putting good at bats together. You keep trying to move the runner over a so small ball until the ball goes over the fence. And, 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 you know, whether you hit a pop up, you run it out. That was always sort of the mentality that I had growing up. There's always another game and you, you'll, you'll, there's always another at bat. And, and, and you never know. It's, it's the Patrick Mahomes 13 seconds left on the clock. You just don't know, you know, the game's not over. And I've just always had that mentality. So right after Sundance, I immediately went into the next job. You know, I directed three episodes of Top Boy and then I went and I directed directed Good Joe Bell. And then I came straight in. So it, it, it just was one after the next. And I was learning in each one of those processes. I love all these sports analogies. One day you're going to make a movie about that Bill's Chiefs game, one of the greatest football games ever. As you said, Mahomes somehow with 13 seconds left. The agony of defeat for Buffalo Bills fans. Oh my God, because Josh great. Allen's amazing. Like he literally couldn't have done anything else. And he still got beat, which is just, it just shows oh you, it just shows you. Are we changing the overtime rules? What do we think? <laughs> yeah, you might have to just for that game. I mean, it just unreal experience to watch that game knowing and and to look to look on the sideline and see Patrick Mahomes actually believe he could do it. Like he wasn't like, it's over. You know, you, you saw Andy Reid's face and it was like, eh, well, we, we tried really hard. Like Andy Reid's face was, this game is over. Patrick right. Mahomes was like 13 seconds, I can do it. And it's like, what? And he really, really believed that it was possible. And, and I think if you have that deep belief in yourself, deep belief in your team, deep belief in the people around you, Anything's possible. So, yeah. That was the peak of sports, by the way. We're never doing better than that. Not just football, sports. It was like, yeah, it was like the 86 Mookie Wilson ball underneath the legs. That's exactly what it was. It was like we witnessed something that iconic in, in sports history. And yeah, just just remarkable to see that live. The fact that Allen converted a fourth and 13 on a 17 play drive, that enough was like, this is incredible. <laughs> and then all this stuff happened after that. I'm like, okay. Totally forgotten that play. Yeah, totally <laughs> forgotten. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, nobody will forget Ronaldo Marcus Green. I know the tryouts didn't go the way you wanted to, but it's been to our benefit. You've turned out to be a great director. This is only the beginning, man. Monsters and Men, now King Richard, available on HBO Max and in theaters. Uh, you're obviously very passionate, along with being talented, and I appreciate your, your passion and uh, being here on Cinephile, man. Continued success. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. Hope to see you next time. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Once again, go check out King Richard. I want to talk quickly for our old movie this week, Danny Collins, which is on HBO this week. I love Al Pacino. He's my favorite actor. You all know that. And as you all know, the last 20 years of Al were not as good as the first 20 years of Al. So it's rare to me when I say to myself, people go, okay, they mention all the crappy movies he's made, which unfortunately has been a few. But I'm like, hey, if you're looking for a great Al Pacino film from the last 15 to 20 years, lead performance, I honestly think Danny Collins is pretty good. Forget about what I think, though. Great cast. Annette Benning. I love his relationship with her. We do have good patter. Bobby Kennedy. Valley, who's always wonderful. He adores Pacino. Love the relationship with him, and, and I love the ending as well, which is particularly bittersweet. But he plays an aging singer who gets a letter from his agent, Christopher Plummer, and it's what John Lennon would have said to him. How would his life have been different? He loves the booze, loves the drugs, but is trying to reconnect with his adult son. Forget about my thoughts. Again, I think it's a sweet film, and I thought Al was terrific. What does Chris Cody think? Because you actually watched Danny Collins. I have to say... Classic Chris Cody response. Yeah. I liked it. No. Now, look. Now, this is the thing, though. Let me give you my notes. I thought it was really, like, the opening scene, I didn't really have any setup for what this movie was. And he comes out, he's performing, and I'm instantly made really sad. I'm like, oh, my God, they're trying to make old Al Pacino a rock star. I'm sad. And then it quickly hit me that that's the thing they're going for. He's an aging superstar that his concerts are kind of sad, and he hates the fact that he's playing all his hits. So, like, very quickly, I was like, okay, relax. They're going for that. And it just, and then his relationship with Bobby Cotton Valley, like, I thought Bobby Cannavale crushed it in Great. this movie. Like you said, it's one of the best endings, the most I've felt an ending to a movie in a long time. Like, I felt like, I felt good, I felt sad. It was like, as, like, it just, to credits, hits. And I'm like, oh my God, th- th- this movie made me feel. And it's just, that's what you want from movies. I enjoyed it. I'm with you. I'm not going to criticize how old Al Pacino is. This is the perfect type of role because it's kind of his life, right? He's playing this role as an aging superstar. So it's, it was just, I enjoyed it. A guy whose best is behind him, who's trying to reclaim yeah. past glory. I'm like, hey, Al, Al yeah. can knock this stuff out of the park. And to your point, that great last scene, oh. when Al puts his arm around him, that doesn't quite get me. But when kind of Valley grabs his hand, I got to be honest, I got oh. a little choked up. I watched Dude, it again. I just got I go, chills right now. Yeah. I just got like goosebumps thinking about that final scene. And yeah. then like the word, like I'm like, we're not going to yeah, ruin it. It's, but a, just, it's a beautiful ending, right? I mean, that's a really just, sweet oh, ending. I can't think of a better last five seconds of a movie just in terms of it was like overwhelming what i felt at the end of that movie great ending it's a great movie endings danny collins is one of those 2015 it's available right now on hbo one other thought about the film how about christopher Plummer, who's now passed on playing the agent i mean he just shows up constantly with a bottle of water the fact yeah. he used to be a booze hound pacino's a booze hound as well but recognizes his buddy needs help so he sends him a case of water every week i'm here now as your agent <laughs> <laughs> not as your friend I'm looking out for you. You're broke. You need the money. Uh, (laughs) I'm here as your business manager. Jennifer Gardner, yeah. just good, just a nice say, movie. Yeah, ben Affleck's significant other, actually, uh, strong performance as well. One criticism was Pacino, not particularly a good singer, but I'm with you. I'm like, that's kind of the point. He's not a good singer. He's got one good hit, which sounds like, oh, sweet Caroline. Hey, yeah. baby. Sounds doll. like sweet Caroline. Exactly. <laughs> Is Danny Collins a real 
person? No, right? No, it's not no, a real fictional story. Character. It's all yeah. fake. Okay. Yeah. I was like, I'm pretty sure he's not playing the piano either. The way they tricked that, like, that's not him playing the piano. Yeah. But uh, he's kind of warbling a little bit. Point is, it's not about the singing, it's all about the acting, and Al brings it. That's Danny Collins' new film right now called Donkey Head. We talked to the writer and star and producer and director, Ugham Darshi, along with one of my best friends, Hussein Madhavji. It's called Donkey Head. It's on Netflix. Here's the interview. What a pleasure here. We're talking about Donkey Head, a new film on Netflix. It's a terrific movie. It's from Ugham Darshi, who is not only the writer, the director, but also the star, a real success story. And also, a welcome back to Cinephile, one of my best friends in the whole wide world. He's like a brother to me. His second time on Cinephile, Hoos Madhavji. You can call him Hussein, you can call him Hoos, you can call him the Moose, Manitoba Moose at one point. He was in Winnipeg. Great to see you both. Ugham, congratulations on making a terrific film. Hoosh, welcome back to Cinephile. You're in Dubai right now. Ugham's in LA. Miracle of technology. We're all together. And we can all see this film on Netflix. And Ugham, I watched it with my wife. We thought it was a terrific movie. The first thing I want to start with this. I can't believe, Hoosh tells me you're a first-time director. How is that possible? That, uh, of all the hats you wore, that was the one that struck me the most. I said her shot composition, the visual sense. And Hoosh told me, I know the budget wasn't uh, exorbitant here. So I'm like, you're really making a lot work here in Regina. Where did you get this visual sense from? Oh, thanks so much. Well, thanks for watching. Thanks for having us here. You know, I actually have a degree in photography. I have a visual arts degree. Okay. And, uh, and so I've always been very visual. I've always been, um, I've loved good composition. I can really appreciate all of that. So I think it's just part of me. I, I just marry photography to a, a narrative and then you become a director. <laughs> so. Well, that makes sense for you. And you're obviously wearing a lot of hats when you're writing, directing and acting. Who's for you? You just have to act, but you are working in an unfamiliar environment in Regina, Saskatchewan for the Americans listening. A little cold. It's a little wintry, but you clearly seeing from your pictures on IG, what you've told me is just how harmonious the set was. What was that experience like when you're, you're hunkered down together? It feels like an acting workshop almost. Yeah, but no, it was, uh, there was a lot of like mini gifts that were there like because of covid because of regina we were all in a little bubble together in a condo so we were in each other's world every single day and we're living and breathing the script and on the weekends we're like you know eating together or we're like we're exercising together so we just became like Ugham. i feel like like you're my sister like we became actual like <laughs> siblings like you're living and breathing this text and there's you know the, the other the, actually the whole family we were all all together, all the time. So it, it really became like an immersive, immersive experience and, and really, really special. Brooke, it got down to one point. We didn't shoot in this, but at one point it got down to minus 50, but we did shoot in I think minus 38 degrees Celsius. I think it was like minus 40 or something. And the dolly broke. Our DP had like icicles off of his like eyebrows. It was like, dude, it was great. But it was such a, no one was complaining. We were, the script was so special, like what Agam put together and, and, and the experience was so special that we were like the cold, like the brutal cold just added to the story. Like everyone just took it in like, yeah, I guess it's this cold and we're going to make this thing. <laughs> I spent a month, one week in Saskatchewan in my previous lifetime covering the Vanier Cup, which is the university football title. And to your point, when it's that cold, I mean, all you look forward to is the bison burgers and the hot pockets and the fireplace because we're all in this together. It's one for all, all for one. So I can certainly speak to your guys' ethic of, of being in the cold together. Agam, I think it's, a, it's an old axiom of writing to make something universally, make it specific. This is a film about a sick family. You and Hoosh play brother and sister. It's about your father and the movie dying and how the family takes care of them. But what I thought was great was 
you know, the devil's in the details, you know, not being sick myself, I did not know what sick rituals are, did not know about cremation. Obviously, being South Asian, I know about the colors and, uh, you know, the clothing and the music and drinking chai and all that kind of stuff. But I, but I think for a wide audience, they don't know a lot about Sikhism, about this culture together. And I thought that was really important, the way you were able to do that. How important was that to you to showcase this slice of life, this, uh, this lifestyle? Yeah, it was really important. I mean, I've been active for a really long time. And so I've played like the generic South Asian in a lot of things. And so it was important for me to just put a voice to what it is to actually be Sikh Punjabi. And I think when you are able to get really specific, that's when audiences are able to connect even more to characters. So I wasn't scared of like really bringing that out and showing it, but I, I wanted to do it right. Like I actually had my mom on board as a cultural consultant to ensure <laughs> that everything was like going perfectly and like it was exactly the way it was supposed to be. Steven's um, turban was like a huge part of it as well. Cause like, I don't know how many times I've watched a show and I'm just like, like, oh, that turban looks so bad. Or like, you know, like somebody has a turban, they don't have a beard and you just don't do that. Like all of those like details. So my mom actually, (laughs) she, she learned how to tie specifically like a British African turban because that's a style that I wanted. And it's not easy, you know, like she, and then poor Stevens, like, I don't know how many times his head was used as just like, you know, just (laughs) like a mannequin <laughs> for people to practice on. Wow. So by the end, we got some like really good turban tires in on set. And it, it I think he looks great. Well, I love the fact, I see my boy Hoosh wearing a kora. I'm like, he's got the got the goatee. And I also, I've never seen, Hoosh proficient in Gujarati. I've never seen you speak Punjabi before. How was your Punjabi, Hoosh? Did that take a little time to learn a few lines? Uh, they just spelled it up phonetically. Actually, no, you know what? There's a line in there where I, where I, where I ask about tea and I'll say a little bit of ginger. Yeah, to the auntie. I, I put that in, I put that in. I knew that one. I knew that. I just double checked. I'm like, is this quick? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. It felt like an ad lib. You were great. Yeah. You were great. It's good pronunciation. Thank you very much. Awesome. And Shmuel, shout out to uh, <laughs> yeah, Agam's mom. She was a huge resource. Like, I spent a lot of time with her. Just she was an amazing resource, actually. As a as a cultural representative, she she was really awesome. Yeah, and I spoke to you yesterday. When we were catching up on the phone. What I liked about it so much was the fact it's like a dramedy. It's a drama. If there's comedy, mm. and Agam, I thought it was critical. I told Hush. I said that the, the two two of the more memorable scenes to me is one after your character tells the guy who's having an affair with that she's dying of cancer, which by the way, it took me a minute to remind me of that great scene in the Royal Tenenbaums where Gene Hackman tells Angelica Houston he's dying and then she leaves. Are you dying or are you not dying? And it's like, well, it doesn't look good. I'm like, well, hang on a second. Which one is it? Like people will say dumb things when they're in trouble. Like I'm dying of cancer. Don't leave me. So I totally thought it was realistic that your character would say that. But when the boyfriend goes and he's telling who's his character and your sister, like what's happening? Like, like this is just what she does. Like how, I, where did you come up with these ideas? is to inject the humor within a very obviously dramatic story. You know, I, I, life is kind of funny. And I think sometimes if you can just pull on like things that actually happen in life, then that helps. I think the, the voices of the characters were also so embedded in my head that I just kind of knew innately how they would react. And it's such a serious topic in a lot of ways that you needed those moments of levity. But then also like just having a great cast. I mean, you know how funny Hussein is and how like, you know, how charming he is and stuff. And so he was able to really bring that out. And a lot of times I would just let the camera roll and just be like, like there's this one moment uh, it's not a funny moment, but it's a moment where all three siblings are in the bathroom after Mona leaves and who's is shouting at Sandy's character. And that's all improv. You know, that's just them kind of like riffing off of each other. But we did that a lot throughout it. And so I think just allowing that space where uh, real life can live 
it makes things a little like you'll, you'll just find these little moments of gold and humor and uh, and things that are dramatic. Yeah, who's your moment of gold is when you have your big moment, which is you know, you're confronted with the fact by your sister that realizing that your wife is having an affair and you're in denial about it, you're having an anxiety attack, you don't want to discuss it. And then Rupinder comes your brother and in the midst of you having this emotional breakdown, he just wants to make sure he gets the ketchup. Like, how did you play that scene? Because you've got to go really emotional, really got to go big, but then you've got to somehow realize yeah. there's this ridiculous aspect of it too. Let me wipe my tear and get you the Heinz 57. Yeah. Well, that's exactly, well, that's exactly it. It's like, you don't want to have an anxiety attack. You don't want to do these things. You're like, and then it happens. And then so, it, and then like, it feels cathartic to talk about it. But then this is, you know, like, cares. You're just stupid catch up. I just want to leave, leave, leave alone. And to be honest, I just, it just happened. It's not like I mapped it out or anything. You know what I mean? It just, Uncle was more like, just to catch your breath. And then let's just, yeah. And then, and then you know, Steven's character, you know, Parm. <laughs> yeah, when he, when he came in, it's just, it's very easy to be like, here's your catch up. Leave me alone. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's awesome. I'm so proud of both of you. Um, and I think it's a wonderful film. It's a beautiful film. It's an important movie. And I want everyone to go see it. Donkey Head, 2021 film written and directed by Agam Darshi, her directorial debut. It stars Darshi as Mona, a woman tasked with taking care of her father with the help of her three siblings after he is diagnosed with cancer and his health starts to deteriorate. That sounds like a bit of a downer, but trust me, there's some levity within that <laughs> as well. And my boy, Hussein Mithavji. Exactly. But it's funny. Come for the laugh. Trust me, it's great. Uh, and Hussein Mithavji, who has, I mentioned Combat Hospital, Saving Hope. He's got many other projects on the way. Call Me Fits as well. And currently in Dubai, living the good life. Uh, Hoosh, Agam, can't thank you guys enough. Really appreciate you both. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. All right, thanks to those guys. Once again, check out Donkey Head. It's funny, when you talk about Canadian cities, the one that people always laugh at is Moose Jaw. But Chris, I think I kind of detected a reaction when I said Regina. I'm going to say my inner, my producer uh, sensors went off. I was like, oh, my God, what is that? Do I need to mark it? Was that a word? And then I was like, okay, Regina. Okay, good, good. We're good. I was like, I kind of maybe looked at my phone for a split second, and then I heard Regina, and I'm like, whoa. Is he Adnan messing with me? Okay, he's just talking. Okay. We, we, we opened the podcast with Black Dildos at the Farmly Christmas, and I were closing with Regina. So this is a good episode for Working Blue. Working Blue. Let's go. Thanks so much for checking out Cinephile. Lots more coming up next week. I'll see you at the movies.